Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Good morning, Missio Day. It's great to be with you this Sunday. I want to say I miss you all uh, as we cannot gather. Uh, but this, we're closing down to the, the second from last week of our Kingdom Citizens series. And I want to offer you a reflection uh, on John chapter 17. So John 17, we're going to be in verse 13 through 19. This is Jesus's prayer for his disciples, for us, for God's people. And it's a beautiful prayer. It's actually one of the only times we get to see God's heart for his people. We see other times where he's teaching his disciples to pray, but rarely do we get to see God's heart and Jesus's heart for us. And we see John 15, 16, 17, three long chapters of his prayer. And we see this prayer that I think is really important in this time. It's a very beautiful prayer. And he says that, Jesus says, I am coming to you, speaking to the Father now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they, us believers, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world, any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they truly may be sanctified. You know, uh, Today, as I record this, uh, in the news where we are, I don't know where we'll be when we watch this, but we have a president-elect, Joe Biden, and we have a sitting president who refuses to accept the conclusion and claims fraud on a voting system. And as I ask many of my friends, how are they feeling about this season, about politics, uh, about church, about this series, I think many people are weary most people I talk to are just are overwhelmed, tired of it all, ready for it to be over, and very weary. We are prisoners of a cultural war, a story war. We are prisoners of this weariness. And we are tired of this, not only political war, but economic war and the viruses of racism and the virus of COVID-19. And one thing I think this election showed us is you look at the map and just how divided deeply fragmented our country is. And many of you watching this right now are either relieved because of the results or grieved because of the results. And I wanna say to you as one of your pastors that if you are grieved right now, I see you, right? I see your frustration. Your story and version of how the world should flourish best didn't happen. And if you are relieved right now, I I wanna say, I see you. I see your joy, I see your exuberance. Your version and story of how the world would flourish did happen. But whether you're relieved or grieved, I wanna remind us today that no matter who was elected president, the vision and mission of the church is the same, right? Like the vision and mission of the church is the same now, it's the same four years from now when another president is elected and so on and so on. The vision of joining God as he makes all things new is the same. And I want today to address this, this question, how are we, the church, to show up? How are we to be Christ for the world? 
And what is the role of the church, us, in this moment? Do we have a role to play? And so, yes, we are weary and tired and overwhelmed. We may feel as prisoners of war, but we have a call as the church. And so I want us to answer this very important question. You know, Nietzsche was once asked why he was so negative towards Christianity in his writings. And he said, I would believe in salvation if Christians looked a whole lot more like someone who was saved. And you know, the church, quite frankly, has been known for both stains and embarrassments, uh, stains and embarrassments, but also times of being a part of liberation for those that are in oppression. Quite frankly, right now, I am, to be honest, just so embarrassed by the church at large. I'm so embarrassed that the, the big C church at large in our country has been co-opted by politics, that, that we, instead of being faithful to Jesus, we have been co-opted by our time. Bernard Shaw, a great writer, once wrote this. I've been meditating on this quote. He says, some people see things as they are and ask why, but I dream, I dream things that never were and ask why not. Why not? I love that. Why not a world that every man, woman, and child is recognized by the law as made in the image of God? Why not a place where poverty is no more? Why not a world where everyone is treated equal? Why not a world where people are reconciled to their God and to their neighbor? This is what I've been thinking about the church, that we are to be the why not 21st century people of God, part of the Jesus movement that was then and is now. I love what Rich Villados says about the church in this moment. We are not to be found in the center of a left and right political world. We are a peculiar people of our own kind, our own species, if you will, finding our place in the center of God's life. I love that, that we're not to be just in the middle of a left-right world. We are to actually be something completely other, peculiar. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this prayer, that, that often kind of cheesy phrase we say in the church, that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. I want to today talk about how the church is to show up in the world. What is the church to be in this moment? I want to talk about three things. And the first is that the church can give us the truest story we all labor for. Jesus is praying for his disciples, spending his last hours in prayer before he dies on the cross. And he prays in this prayer, this, this phrase, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And if you read the whole section of 15 through 17, there's this preoccupation uh, and an enormous amount of, of, of language around the fact that, that they would be in the truth and that Jesus is true and that they would be in his name. It's kind of the sense that he wants us to know that we have the truest story of ultimate reality. And this is so important when we ask what kind of role we want to play in the world, because I love what Alistair McIntyre says. He says, you can't ask the question, what role do we want to play until you answer the question, what story or story stories are we a part of? We can't answer like, what role are we to play unless we know what is the ultimate story that I am living? And until we know what the truest story is that we belong to, you, you can't know your role fully. And I just think this is so important for our time because depending on the answer to that question, like if your story is ultimate, a political story for the world, 
then your, your political party and affiliation will be your answer for the role you play in this world. If it is a philosophical story, your answer will be about the ethics will be the theme of your life. If your story is ultimately an economical story, it will be about abundance. If it's an intellectual story, academics will be what saves your soul. But the base reality, the truest story we are a part of is actually a love story. We who have vowed to renounce Satan and evil and all that harms God's children, who say, I will follow Jesus, we are the why not people of God who have a God of love. That's the story we live in. And we live in a why weary, weary world. I've been thinking about how we have a why not God of love. And think about that. In creation, God says, why not? Why not create a world that's beautiful and good in humans that are made in my image? Why not do this? In, is, in Egypt, the Hebrew children were slaves in Egypt. God saw their misery, heard their cry. And despite their earthly condition, God said, why not? Why not set them free from slavery? And God raised up Moses and he set the Hebrew slaves free. We have a why not God. That's how he rolls. We have a God who says, why not raise my son Jesus from the dead to show the world how much I love them. We have a why not God of love. And the challenge is, is for me at least, I grew up in a, like a very... Um, small church, rural church. And in the 80s, 90s, most Protestant churches, I would say, uh, were basically inherited a fundamentalist framework. And what I mean by that is historically, when you look back at the history of the church in the United States, the church in the 80s and 90s was responding to a liberal Christianity that was making claims that, you know what, like the miracles in the scriptures, they're not really true. You know, there's not really such thing as a virgin birth. Uh, we know that science proves that. We know that science proves that you can't raise someone from the dead. So these Troy's stories are not necessarily true, but they're, they're helpful and they're great models for us, for our faith. And fundamentalists came along and said, no, they're actually our right beliefs that we should adhere to. And I think there's some good things in that. But what I think has happened is we've mostly taught on just a small portion of the truest story about our lives. You see, the Bible is made up of four chapters creation, fall, redemption, renewal. Creation, fall, redemption, renewal. And what that moment has done and what I think many of us have, have seen is only a two chapter story, fall and redemption. And we've left off the bookends of the story that we were created in God's image and we are created to be present in the world. But we are also people of renewal, that God will one day make all things new on the world, in the earth. Therefore, we are to be radically peculiar, radically different from this world while we were in the world. Do you see that? And so we've taken off, and I, I want us to see that these two things, when you include these two major chapters, you get these two in Jesus' words that he prays for us, right? He prayed that we would, that we would not forsake being distinct, not of the world, but he also prayed that we would be radically present in the world, right? This comes from John 17. He says in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world. Monsieur Day, God does not want to take you away from the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And so this approach 
with just two chapters of the story, sin and redemption, though, though those are very important, it, it causes for some very harmful approaches to how we approach being in the world. The one approach that I think is, is off kilter is this idea of condemning the world. And it starts with this posture of needing to be apart from the world. You know, Christians have been social distancing for a very long time, trying to be apart from the world. We don't want to associate the world. And it comes from this kind of mentality that, that's like, you know what, if I get too close to the things of the world, I'll get contaminated, right? Like, when I was a kid, it was like, you know, there's certain movies you can't go see. And there's, I remember there was a youth group night where we brought our CDs that of secular music to be burned. I'm like, no, not Nirvana, not Pearl Jam, please. Those are, I, I literally remember hiding Snoop Dogg's CD under my pillow at night, making sure no one knew I had it. Now, should I have had that album? Probably not. But the point is, is that this fear that we're going to get contaminated is harmful. I mean, my greatest concern of this posture is this. It leads us to a place of indifference. This posture doesn't want us to be involved in the issues of the day. We just want to focus on Jesus, right? Not focused on the issues Jesus is concerned about and the people that Jesus is concerned about, but about our own self-protection and comfort. And this angry condemnation towards the world it's one where we're known for what we're against rather than what we're for. Melissa taught about it last week. And this gets expressed through conservatives who believe that God is, is, hates Muslims and hates gays. And, and, and it also gets expressed through progressives who take the call of being prophetic. And that they take that to mean that they ruthlessly condemn those who they disagree with rather than forgetting that biblical prophecy always ends in hope. Whether we are talking left we're right, we're predisposed to be known by what we are against. But to be in the world, but not of the world, is to be radically present to people's needs and suffering, but be radically different, that it calls forth something, as we contradict the world, it calls forth something full of promise, something full of beauty and hope and justice and truth, not lies, and meaning and value. So we reject condemning the world, but we also reject this, this posture of copying the world, essentially finding our hope in the world's system. Political fusion, where basically we wrap our hope with who gets elected. We wrap our hope with who's in the Supreme Court. We wrap our hope with the systems of our day. And yes, let's be involved, and yes, let's mobilize, but copying the world's agenda and using Jesus as our mascot around it is not faithfulness to the vision of Jesus. You know, we, we have this beautiful story that we talked about. And we have one job. That's to be a part of bringing God's new creation to earth. I love what N.T. Wright says. He says, the call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God, the victory of God in the world through suffering love. This is what Jesus is doing. He's praying before he dies on the cross. He's showing us that he is the why not God of love, that he's going to die and give his life sacrificially, and that is the way of the church. So we as the church have the truest story we all really are hoping for and longing for. But second, the church, we find the community we actually long for. In verse 11, he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. 
He prays the church would be one, right? In verse 11, he's saying, I pray they may be one. But then he also prays that we would be protected, not from danger. Did you notice this? But from the danger of division, not from persecution and suffering. That's not the greatest danger of the church. The greatest danger is division. Now, this kind of unity is not one in which the beneficiaries of injustice get to demand unity on those that they oppress. This is a unity that is covenantal, relational, not transactional, deep, suffering love like Jesus did. It's not to be clones of each other, vote in the same way. It is lived in a mutual self-giving love, to love the interest of our neighbors. But far too long, we've used the Bible as swords and shields rather than a mirror to inspect our lives. The church is known now as a judgmental tool, not as a table of inclusion. Jesus is our mascot wrapped around our political ideology, not as our king in love. And in the church, we find this community. And I've just been looking at this map thinking, you know, I've forgotten my identity too. I all week was studying the map, writing down the numbers, doing the math as if I was going to get up and present the map for us. I was in it. Man, I was really in it. Hours devoted to calculating votes. And I've been looking at that map thinking, my goodness, we have sorted ourselves out as a country. We have sorted ourselves out into bunkers, literally, geographically, into factions. We live with, go to school with, work with people who believe just like us. And you would think these ideologies would unite us and make us really intimate. But you know what we struggle with as a country more than any other, than any other time? Loneliness. And this is pre-pandemic. That this kind of sorting out of the world has led not to intimacy as community. It's led to loneliness. And that makes me ask the question, like, why is this happening? Why are we united around things we have in common, but yet we're all so lonely? Because behind this ideology of shared politics is not connection. It's we just hate the same people. I don't really want to get to know you. I'll hang out with you because we hate the same people. I think, I don't know who coined it first, but I heard the phrase this way, that it's common enemy intimacy. And so what is happening to us? We are in a highly polarized world and it's a crisis. And here's the thing, between you and me and a Syrian refugee, we share a common humanity. It cannot be severed, but it can be forgotten. And my fear, church, is that we have forgotten that we are shared human beings in this world that we have a community that we all long for in the church where we can share, have a shared humanity. This is what the whole New Testament was about, that you as a Jew and you as a Gentile can get along in the same oikos, the same household, that, you know what, a, a migrant worker and a, a tax collector and a Jewish faithful Pharisee and a slave and a slave owner could live together in the same house. You know how hard that had to be? You know how hard that had to be to a Jew who said you can't gather near anything unclean to be with some of the people that were labeled unclean in the same household? And you think about this crazy movement of polarization. And the opposite of it isn't just isolation. The opposite is dehumanization. We are in a time of dehumanization. You know, we are biologically hardwired to take care for you take care of each other. Biologically hardwired for that. We're not hardwired to belittle and shame and do violence and be prisoners of war. 
And so we take a group's humanity and we start to move them outside of what we see as human. And if you do that, you have permission to do whatever you want to with them. And I've been studying a little side project, mob violence, lynchings, uh, genocide. And you know what the first act of all of those are? Every genocide in history starts with words of name calling. And if you are offended when you look at your Facebook page because you see someone calling your party something that, that you're upset about or someone, you know, Biden's kids and making fun of them, you should be equally offended, as hard as this sounds, when someone may call Trump's kids a name. And so we get in this place, we don't see humanity in each other. We're, if we don't see the humanity, we will be able to do whatever we want to each other. And we are in a very dangerous place as a country. We have got to see that the church is the only place, the only place where we can have the community we long for. And lastly, lastly, the church brings God's dream to life. He says that as you sent me in the world, I have sent them into the world, right? I've sent you into the world. And we live in between the weariness of our world and a why not love of God. We live between the real and the ideal the creation, the fall, and the final renewal. And the people who've changed God's world for good have always been why not people. People who said, I don't see things as they are. I see things as they are not yet and ask why not, right? William Wilberforce, why not? Ending an entire government built on slavery. Mother Teresa, why not care for the most hungry in our world? Martin Luther King Jr., why not? a world where people of different races can live together as God's beloved community, right? Why not? And we declare today that we are the why not people of God. Now that can sound like a big grandiose dream, and it is. Jesus had a great vision, but he acted very small. He gathered 12 disciples. He ate with prostitutes and gluttons, and he lived a life of simplicity. He lived a life that, that both uh, challenged corrupt power and gave mercy to those in need. He fed those who were hungry. He forgave those who were wrong. And he lived a simple life practically. And so we as a community can change. You can change your culture. You can change those around you. We are the preview of God's church. We are the preview of God's kingdom. So I wanna encourage you today as the church that we are to show up. We're to repent of the stories we found as ultimate and see that our truest story is the story of Jesus. We are to see that our community and intimacy will not be found by aligning with just political ideologies. Our intimacy will be found in the kingdom of God's people. And we gotta see that, you know what? The world is weary right now but we have a why not God of love. And we are God's dream. We are the people who will bring God's dream to life. I know that there is no practical three steps to the end of this message, but I believe by the seal of the Holy Spirit, he will sort this out and cause us to meditate on it and how we can make a difference in our cultures, in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our city. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. 
To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.